Sirius XM Sports Podcasts presents Mad Dog's Daily Bite with Christopher Russo. And good afternoon, everybody! Hey, I'm Christopher Russo. I'm sure you never heard of me, but I've heard of you. How are you doing today? Well, okay? good to meet you. Nice to meet you. Uh, first off, let's do the overall theme. What a job they did. You know, I consider myself, I'm 64 years old, so I consider myself not an expert, but I know a little something about Kennedy and the assassination, but I had never seen this kind of footage. They were yeah. superb with what they came up with. Let's do that first. Go ahead. Well, they've, you, they work closely with the um, Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas, which has all that vintage footage, and they decided they didn't want to have a narrator. They wanted to tell the story through eyewitnesses, and then they had so much of that vintage footage that it's just, when I saw it, I was just shocked. You know, I hadn't seen it either, for the most part. All right, let's discuss, uh, they did a super job with it. Uh, let's discuss where you were in your career and life in the fall of 1963. Go ahead. I had edited a weekly newspaper after I got out of college for a year and a half, and then was a stringer for AP and UPI, and then went to work for AP in Dallas on a temporary job, and then in Austin on a temporary job with the AP, and then my third job with the AP was finally a permanent job. So I, I had been working for the AP about two years, two and a half years. Are you from Texas originally, Peg, or not? San Antonio. Oh, you are from San Antonio. Where'd you go to uh-huh. college? Did you go to University of Texas? Where'd you go to school? No, North Texas State College at the time. It's now University of North Texas. Uh, the University Took a journalism degree, got a degree in journalism. Didn't know what I was going to do when I uh, went there, but and I had never met a journalist until I became one. But I was one of 800 people undecided, and I decided, no, no, no. And so I just took a flyer on journalism, and it was in just a perfect fit. Uh, AP, uh, this is writing. This is not broadcasting. So you were a, uh, a, a journalist writer. You were not a broadcaster at the time. Is that correct? Right. I did write radio news. The AP at that time had a desk for radio news where you wrote it for the radio. Okay. You didn't so say it on the radio. You, you said, know. but you wrote it. So you were always, yeah. uh, from a writing perspective, I, what, writing brought you, and editing. what brought you to Dallas that particular day? Was it just the fact that Kennedy I was, was doing a? In Dallas. You were I was based there? in Dallas, and my bureau chief. You know, when a president comes to town, anything and everything changes. So he brought in a bunch of bureau chiefs from adjoining states, and he had asked me to get a date with a Texas state legislator so I could go to the uh, no press allowed dinner that night in Austin that John Connolly was doing, that the governor was doing for the Kennedys. So I had gotten my Texas legislator lined up, had had my hair done, I had five hours to spare, and my bureau chief said, we'll just go down and watch the motorcade and tell us if anything happens. And so I did that. Wow. Um, did you uh, were you did you consider yourself a political journalist at the time, that you were on top of all the politics? or you I wasn't was... on top of politics. No. I was a desk. I was in, you know, I was a, a regular beginning AP reporter. You, you worked all the, all the awful shifts. So I was due to go into the AP at 1030 at night, work till 7. And then, um, you know, some shifts I worked from uh, 7 until 3.30. That was, that was when you became a veteran. But I, we didn't do politics. I didn't do politics. I didn't. The AP had such strict rules that they said you couldn't even be on a panel with League of Women Voters discussing an election. You know, you had to be scrupulously 
out of it, nonpartisan, and that is that was okay with me. That sure was. That's the way it should be. Uh, you know, I tell you the thing that I learned most of all. Uh, I did not realize. I knew she was a sensation, but I did not realize how much Texas and America at the time loved Jacqueline Kennedy. Tell me yeah. about that. Go ahead. Yeah, wasn't that something? That piece of the film is just remarkable. I think. It sure is. And I did not realize, I get, you know, she miscarried in August. So I didn't realize, I think it was a miscarriage. Oh, did he die yeah. at one years old? I, whatever it was. No, I did, he died after being born. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I, I did not realize how much, even Texas, you know, Lyndon Johnson country, I did not realize how much they were really excited to see her. Tell us about yeah. that for a sec. Go ahead. Let me hear. Well, I think that that she was the glamour star, and this was her first appearance after the mis- after the death of her infant. It was the first time she'd been on any trip or basically seen in public, and so they were just they were excited because she was a glamorous, vigorous, you know, enchanting first lady. Uh, oh, is it? It's surprising today. How surprising was it then that both Johnson, the vice president, and the president made this trip? Well, it was Johnson's home state, and so he was trying to get Kennedy in there to help resolve a political problem between another senator, Ralph Yarborough, who was a liberal from El Paso, I think, and the sort of major part of the Democratic Party. And so, coming up on the '64 elections. Kennedy was in there to try to make peace with all sections of the Democratic Party. Because you wouldn't see that today, both the vice president and the president traveling in the same circles on a road trip. I mean, right. I, you, you wouldn't. Right. Um, the other thing, of course, you wouldn't see. And when you think about it now, Peg, and we'll get to the in the uh, basement of the police station in a minute. But boy, oh boy, it is unbelievable to see the open obviously motorcade all the fans him shaking hands i mean it was a different time did anybody at the time think this was a little odd that the president was almost a sitting duck or it just was oblivious to all aspects of american life how about that i think that people the police chief had given an interview the day before a news conference the day before saying no there's not going to be any problems Texas is not against, there won't be any problems, you know. I think he was oblivious. And I, I think if you look at the crowd in the police station um, on Friday when they were bringing through this crowd of reporters, my, I mean, I was in that, it was just shoulder to shoulder. And um, the, they brought through the guns, high, holding the gun high over the head. Then they brought through Oswald. And then later, his uh, wife and mother, and there was no police protection or protection of them or sorting out the the press. It was a scene that today you can't even imagine it. Yeah, it was, and a free- it was the same thing on Sunday then with the in the basement. Yeah, it was a free for all. The whole weekend, the whole week is a free for all. I right, let's say the 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 ape the your boss, the bureau chief says, I right, want you to go follow the motorcade. So where were you at about one o'clock? Where exactly were you? I was outside the police uh, city hall, which is where the motorcade ch- uh, turned the corner, so it had to slow a little bit. And then I walked down the street towards the Dallas Times Herald building, and um, ran into a cop who was being assaulted by three young women who said the motorcade went so fast we didn't have a chance to look at him. Why? Why was that? And he said, "Well, it's Dallas, you know." And uh, Adelaide Stevenson, the UN secretary, the UN ambassador, had been hit on the back of the head two two weeks earlier. 
There were billboards calling for uh, impeach Earl Warren, the Supreme Court justice, and there was there were a lot of um, John Birch Society people around who were very noisy. It didn't necessarily represent any grassroots opinion of real folks in Dallas, but um, my preacher in the small church that I um, was supposed to join on Sunday, but my didn't I didn't hear the sermon of the preacher, but his sermon was all of Dallas has to bear some blame for the atmosphere of hate that sprang up here in some quarters because the good folks of Dallas never thought they had to counter that because they knew that didn't apply to them. But he said someone, a third grade teacher in his congregation had called him and said that when the news came over the loudspeaker in her school that all the third graders cheered. And he said, no, you know, those third graders never met Jack Kennedy. That was what they were. They were reacting to what they were hearing around their kitchen table wow. you know, at home. So you're telling me there was a, a teacher there at your church who said my third graders cheered. Oh, my goodness. When I heard the news, uh, and I had to match that story on Tuesday night when I came into the AP on the for the overnight shift. And I called another friend of mine who was a teacher and something similar had happened in her classroom. She calmed him down. She was teaching seventh grade. But it was just something that was un- unfathomable, unbelievable that that could happen. Uh, it's f- f- now, did you you were too far away from here to hear any gunshot gunshots? Is that correct? I was way far away. Yeah, I was you know probably ten eight blocks away. Did you find out instantaneously? Did it no. take you five minutes? When did you find no, out that the president I, was I, shot? After I interviewed the cop and these three girls, I kept walking leisurely towards the the AP office, which was in the Dallas Times Herald building. And it was only when I got out on the floor of the newsroom that the I heard the receptionist saying on the phone, all we know is the president's been shot. And the editor of the paper was on the desk briefing reporters with what he knew. And I ran into the AP office and they'd already put out a flash, which is, you know, higher than a bulletin saying the president's been shot. So I looked over my editor's shoulders and saw that it was apparently had taken place at the book depository, which was only about four blocks away. So I just ran out again and ran down to the book depository and sort of embedded myself with the cops because they were, they, they were getting information. Most of it was true. Some of it wasn't. But, you know, I, whatever they got, they I got it from them and went and phoned the AP office. So I was there for about an hour funneling information from the cops to my AP office. This is Peg Simpson, folks. AP, of course, uh, on the scene there in Dallas in 1963, part of that great documentary we've been talking about. Um, was it? Tell us the little scene. This is about five minutes after he was shot. Give me a little feel of, was it pure chaos? What was the scene at that book depository store right after he was shot? Well, I wasn't there right after he was shot. It was I was probably there ten minutes. All right, ten minutes. Okay. And it was just it was total. You know, there were cops after cops after cops. I didn't look to see who was protecting their lying down on top of their kids on the grassy knoll. I think those people had already cleared out. There was great footage in the films about that. Yes, but <clears throat> I just saw. You know, there was just this sense of disbelief that anything like that could happen. And so we were focused on the book depository building because that's we we were assuming that the cops assumed that's where the shots came from. There was a window that was open on the sixth floor, and um, 
So we just were watching what was being carried out of that building. Uh, did Oswald, how did he get out of that building without being seen so quickly? I mean, as you said, you were there 10 minutes later. He was on the sixth floor. He go out a back way. I know they found him. He, he killed Tibbet a little later, but he well, wasn't. He, he uh, obviously had planned how to get out of there. I think he took a bus to the other part of the a city away from the downtown towards the Oak Cliff section of Dallas and was wandering around there. One of the people that I'm not sure is in the film or not. He was a book. Yeah, he was he in was the film. Owner yep. of a store. Yep. And Oswald came in there and um, he might be in the second film. Oswald came in and, and then left again and he got sort of suspicious. Everybody was on guard. They had no idea who had done what or where that person might be. And he's the one who saw him go into the uh, Texas theater theater and called the cops. Yes. Uh, and that's that, how I found him. All right. Now, where did you go? Did you go right to the police station an hour or two later after you left the book depository star, uh, store? Where did Peg Simpson yeah, go? Yeah, probably an hour and a half later. After there was no more news coming out of the book depository, then I went to the police station and just hung out there probably for four or five hours. All right. And how long did it take before they brought Oswald in there? A couple of, uh, how long after you were there was Oswald there? About 10 maybe minutes? Maybe an hour. Or maybe an hour. Okay. Yeah. Did you know who Jack Ruby was prior? Had you heard of Jack Ruby? Never heard of him. Uh, it's alarming now. I understand he was close to all the te- Dallas policemen, but how the hell does an average citizen with a gun able to patrol the downstairs basement of a police house? I don't understand. How's that happen? Because he was there all the time, and the cops were at his bar. When I told my bureau chief that the after he was after he shot Oswald, and I was had gone to get a phone and was dictating what I could hear from everybody and the cops uh, to my editors on the other end. They had seen the shooting, but they didn't really know what had happened. They couldn't, and they so it was just I needed to tell them anything and everything. And I said pretty quickly, you know, these guys say they know who it is. They say it's Jack Ruby. And he said, Jack Ruby, I drink, I drink in his bar. So here was a reporter who knew Jack Ruby because he was on a night shift and he would take his lunch hour and go over to the Jack Ruby's bar. And the cops were there also. He was It was sort of a hangout for reporters and cops and anybody else. I'd never gone there. I didn't go to bars, frankly. But, you know, I never had heard of Jack Ruby. Never had. Uh, were you there when he but did the... cops, the, 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 I think the film shows that he had been in the police station the day before. Yes, he was. Handing He's... out business cards. You know, <laughs> the guy was just a fixture there. Yeah, and he was there on the Friday, too. Uh, were you there when they showed Oswald's press conference, quote-unquote? Were you there for that, Peg, or not? I don't remember that, but they're positive that the uh, National Geo people said I had to have seen that. So, you know, I might have. I've, one of the things we saw when we were in the this JFK tour of um, reporters, and one of the things we did was go to the Sixth Floor Museum, but we also went to the Dallas uh, Police Headquarters, or what used to be, I'm not sure. They had a museum. They had an exhibit anyway on the assassination, and one of the one of the handlers came rushing over to me and said, "There's a story. You have a story behind this glass here. It's your. It's a banner headline. I don't remember what newspaper it was in, but it was quoting Oswald as, as saying he was not guilty. He hadn't done anything. He was innocent. And it was innocent. your by. And it was your byline. So it was, yeah. It was, uh-huh. Well, how about that? Uh, how close did you? Without to get eerie here, how close did Oswald walk by you on a Friday night? He didn't walk by. Oh, in the in the jail, I, we were all so squished together that they just had to 
to um, clear a path. And so, you know, mostly I didn't, I mostly I don't remember seeing anything of him, but I know I must have been there. Uh, how about the gun when the uh, officer puts the gun over his head, the rifle, without the gloves on and everything else? Were you right there for that too or not? Yeah, yeah. How, I mean, that, that would never happen today. Did anybody think that was odd, that the murder weapon is being... Ha- I know it's no DNA and all that, but boy, how odd was that to see the murder weapon handled by a policeman uh, that killed the president four or five hours earlier? How odd was that? Do you well, think that? I don't think anybody was focusing on how odd that was. They were still focusing on how the hell did this happen? What does it mean? And I don't think anybody was faulting the cops or calling on... You know, wait a minute, be careful with what you're handling. I mean, all of that came later. Uh, the Ruby, when he shot Oswald, where exactly were you? Were you there standing right next to him? I where? was standing right in front of the exit where the uh, cops were bringing Oswald out. And Ruby must have been three or four feet to my right. But I didn't know who he was. I didn't recognize him. And I didn't really, I don't have any memory of seeing him come out past me. I mean, I've seen so many of the photographs that I am assuming that I must have seen it that way too. But, you know, I did. I, all I knew was I had to get out of there and go get, go find a, film, a phone. All right. So the first thing you did when you heard the gunshots, you figured it was with Oswald. You knew that. You ran to a phone to file the report. That's the first thing you did? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it was pandemonium on the floor right in front of me. You just had to step around the bodies and it was clear that uh, Oswald was down and that they were grappling with somebody who had shot him, and then I went to inside quickly. I don't know whether that's the basement of the Dallas jail, of the Dallas City Hall. I don't know whether that's a place where people come and pay traffic tickets, but there was a whole bank of telephones, and I just grabbed one. I see. Um, did you know right away, did you, did everybody in that room, I know they took him to the hospital, we see it in the, thir- in the second, ep- the third episode, He's you see him on a stretcher being, uh, you know, to an ambulance, did everybody assume that he was going to be, that he was dead? What was the assumption there after he was shot? Anybody, any, any remember? My assumption was that he was dead, because it was such a direct hit, but, you know, I'd, nobody was saying that. Uh, so your assumption was, uh, so you followed the well, story. I didn't, I didn't pass on that assumption to anybody, I just, you, they you, saw it as much as I did. You, you know, did. And- All right. Um, do you, what did you do after uh, Oswald goes and they arrest Ruby? I mean, your day is officially, I guess, kind of over. I mean, what exactly did you do then as a reporter? What was, what, what, what was late in the Sunday afternoon? What'd you do? Do you remember what you did? Well, I remember what I did that night. I don't know whether I ever went to the office that day. Uh, I'm sure I kept on working, you know, because that happened at around noon. I'm sure I kept on working. I was in, I rented a house with four other people, and all of them were involved in one way or the other with the assassination. One was also on the grassy knoll. She was taking her lunch hour from the Dallas News. And uh, another was, and she had adopted a younger sister from McAllen, Texas, because everybody who was 14 was getting pregnant in McAllen. So she'd given her sister's teacher a permission slip so the kid could go see the parade, and the teacher refused to honor it. And instead, she put up the Dallas News ad, a black-bordered ad that was criticizing Kennedy, put it up on her, her blackboard and said, nobody will leave this classroom or you'll get a failing grade. So the kid couldn't leave. And then the other two women worked at Parkland Hospital, which is, of course, where Kennedy was. So I that night, there was a party at our house by the friend of mine who worked for the Dallas News. She had just joined the Unitarian Church 
and she didn't know most of those people, but they were all coming to our house, and there were three bartenders who came that she had worked with on a part-time job she had, and they were just mournful. You know, every all the civil rights progress was going to go down the tubes. Who knew who Johnson was, but he was sort of a backwoods Texan, and JFK was the shining light who was going to fix things, and they were just they were just mournful. So of all the things that I had to do was to entertain people I mostly didn't know who were in a state of shock, you know. Yeah, shock almost, and then grieving. It was shock first. How about the city of Dallas who had the bad reputation and now worse? It took a long time. You worked there. I know you're born in San Antonio, but you worked there. How about the Dallas that, you know, had the... Namaker for a long time. This is where Kennedy was assassinated. That is not what you want as a city. How did they grow out of that? Let me hear. I think it was very, very hard. You know, Dallas had a lot of uh, luminaries who were business entrepreneurs, including the guy from, I think, Sweden who had started Texas Instruments. So they had a really uh, very vibrant business, large corporate uh, presence there, but they never did become Atlanta, you know, which is what business leaders really wanted the business leaders writ large had in mind. They never did that partly because they never really had a civil rights movement within Dallas. There was a lot of segregation between the few blacks, the minority of the blacks who lived there, a huge Hispanic population, and all of these other whites. And they're it's like my preacher said, you you don't know what's in the minds of some of these people. If a third grade classroom can erupt in applause, that's such a shock to everybody to know, to think that that could even happen. And so I don't think that the Dallas I went to, I mean, I went to this small um, church where there were a lot of um, preachers. There were a lot of, um, what do you call them? professors of the seminary at Method at SMU. Right. And they went there partly because it was a more liberal congregation than the huge uh, I see. Methodist church next to SMU. So people were making their choices all the time, but I never thought of Dallas as a hateful place. You never did. But they, but they got stuck with that because of the... I mean, the preacher, went, uh, one of the theologians called Dan Rather and said, you need to hear what this preacher has said you need to and he and so he rebroadcast his sermon on a tuesday night on i guess cbs radio and um that's when everything lit up in new york when you came to that part about the third graders applauding the police the uh, uh preacher had already my preacher had already been put under you know house he he had to be taken away from his house because he had so many death threats against him and the person that my friend that I eventually interviewed where the same thing had happened, something similar happened in her seventh grade, she'd already called the station to defend him because they were saying he was lying. And, you know, it was just like a Methodist preacher to go out and lie about something when Dallas was at its most uh, vulnerable stage. And she said, he didn't lie. No, no, no. And so people were just making accusations right and left. And she wasn't fired because... She worked in a suburban school rather than in a Dallas school. Hmm. Um, what is your, uh, obviously, we've done this over 30 years. What was your immediate feeling, Peg, when Ruby killed Oswald? 
Did you think, oh my God, conspiracy? Did you think poor angry citizen just was so frustrated? I know at the time you probably thought about it over the last 60 years. What did you think about it? about it? Oh, you haven't? No, you haven't? I let it go. You, you know, did? I think one of the White House reporters told me when he was down there, I don't remember this, it was Frank Cremere or Jack Bell, but somebody that I knew from the White House AP contingent, and he said, how does it feel to be covering the biggest story that you'll ever cover in your life at the young age of whatever, 25? And I thought, well, that's a horrible thought. you know. And so I think I, I probably, uh, without saying so overtly, I probably made up my mind that I, that I was not going to be the assassination specialist in the world or in the AP. I went on and did a lot of other things, including spending 10 years in Eastern Europe, looking at the rebirth of um, Poland especially, but other countries after the fall of the wall and fall of communism, where there was no blueprint for what to do next. And that was a high drama story that I uh, just loved covering. I also invented beats while I was still with the AP on the women's political movement when that started in the 71, 72. And so I just decided that, that there was no way that I could as a, I didn't want to anyway, you know, I'd had a part in that that was, that was a part in that, you know, but I didn't, that didn't give me any bragging rights. I don't think that I thought it was my, it was divine will that I go and study more about the assassination and all the conspiracy trails and all the, you know, things that were uh, just unraveling all around you that well before the Warren report was out all these theories and, and fears. And I said, I'm, that's, it's not up to me to sort that out. Wow. So you've stayed away from it. Um, how long, last thing, how long did it take? Uh, has it stuck with you? Uh, I mean, have you, do you think about this every November 22nd or do you just think about it today because it's a special year? How long is it stuck with the secret service guys forever? How yeah. long did it stuck with Peg Simpson? The fact well, that you, you don't were there. ever forget it. There's forget. no comparing this story with anything else. You just can't. And when this guy uh, with the 72 films called me from London in February and said they were doing this series of films for National Geographic and they'd like to interview me. And they, I, I, don't, I, don't, I think they got my name from the Sixth Floor Museum. I'm still not sure. But I said, I don't do conspiracy theories. So if that's what you're looking for, I'm not your person. They said, no, 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 we're not doing that either. We're just telling the story through eyewitnesses. So I said, okay, I'll do that. Went down and was interviewed for four, day, four hours. And the person interviewing me said, you know, you're, you're so calm and precise on all this. You must have done this a lot. And I said, no, actually, nobody has ever interviewed me about the assassination. I mean, I, it's in, maybe in my resume, but you know, it's not anything that anybody wanted to know more about. Come, it takes an anniversary like this, I guess, you know, for, and, and National Geo's commitment to it to tell that story again. Hmm. So today you think about it. Peg, you did a tremendous job. Thanks for some help here today. Uh, enjoy. Uh, I know enjoy the day, but keep up doing all the great things you've done. You did a great job in this documentary. And well, uh, here in our little, our little sports audience enjoyed it. So thanks very much. I appreciate it. 
Okay, thank you. Bye. Want more Chris Russo? Listen to Mad Dog Unleashed weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM Channel 82. Mad Dog Daily Bite is part of the Sirius XM Sports Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts.